Hello and welcome to Dairy Dialogue, the podcast from Dairy Reporter. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and today, again, it's our US reporter Beth Newhart taking center stage with four interviews from IFT in New Orleans. And I appreciate if you're listening in Louisiana, that's not how you say New Orleans. From June the 2nd to the 5th, 2019, nearly 20,000 visitors attended the 79th Annual Institute of Food Technologists show, and that's why it's called IFT. There were more than 1,000 exhibitors and 100 different sessions, and there were more than 90 countries represented at the show. Next year, IFT will move back to Chicago for the next 10 years from July the 12th to 15th, 2020. So no amazing Creole or Cajun food for Beth for the next few years. Well, unless she makes it at home or goes to a restaurant, I suppose. From the event, we spoke with Michael Ivey, National Sales Director of Butterbuds, Hydrosol Global Commercial Director Brian Walker, DSM Ingredients Ingrid Daman, Business Manager of Shelf Life Solutions, and Salt of the Earth Business Unit Director David Hart. And our other interview this week is with Nick Bly, Design and Development Manager at international company Pacor. And we talked to Charlie Highland from INTL FC Stone for the weekly update on the global dairy markets. So, a packed program with five interviews again. What's going on? No lengthy preamble from me today, partly because I wasn't at the event and also because we have five interviews to get through. So let's get going with the IFT interviews. And Beth spoke with Michael Ivey, the National Sales Director of Butterbuds, a company that produces ingredients like concentrates made from homogenizing butter before liquefying it and adding enzymes. They also have a growing non-dairy line. Beth first asked about what the company does. So essentially what we do is take actual butter, break it down physically, homogenize it, liquefy that, then add enzymes to it with a big shear. So you're breaking down the fatty acid chains into, or you're breaking down the triglycerides into the fatty acid chains. So it concentrates the flavor naturally. It's all bound together because when you taste butter, you really don't taste a lot. When you break it apart, you get to taste the different components of it. Almost like how buttered popcorn tastes as compared to regular regular yeah. butter. So initially it was used for cost reduction. So for like a mac and cheese, take out, I don't know, 70% of a cheese powder, mm-hmm. use our product to enhance, you know, some of those notes, which it will, and boost mm-hmm. the cheese flavor. Backfill it with something like whey or maltodextrin, and theoretically get the same flavor profile, mm-hmm. but you're reducing the cost of the commodity. Okay. And since our products, we've only had, I've been here 12 years and we've had two price increases because we're able to pull that along a period we buy correctly and we're able to pull that along a you know a correct amount of time mm-hmm. where we can we can weigh the ups and downs of the market mm-hmm. so something that's more price stable costs less and you actually get more flavor that was used for in that capacity for a very long time but our products are more like concentrates they're defined as natural flavor through a CFR mm-hmm. but they're more like concentrates they have the middle and long chain fatty acids, which are the mouthfeel and the richness of fat. Mm-hmm. So those are used often now with nutritional beverages and bars okay. to mask over off notes of anything. Yeah. Everybody's putting plant-based proteins into everything. It'll, it'll create a softer bite. It'll mask over the, the bitterness, okay. uh, the bitter notes of that product, uh, create more mouthfeel and richness too. And that's what a lot of our products are used for now, just 
they can be used in just about every, any type of category, mm -hmm. but that's what they can be used for in whether it's bakery, meats, um, a lot of times it's the masking component of it, yeah. the functionality side of it, which is okay. why they're really more like a concentrate as compared to a, um, you know, a true flavor. And we've expanded our line. When I started here, we didn't have one really butter or cream that was non-dairy. Mm -hmm. That's really where we've seen the growth in the last couple of years. Uh, non-dairy, butters, creams, cheeses. So that line's expanded dramatically. If you don't want to add an allergen, but you want the functionality of fat, you want the flavor of fat, that's kind of how um, those came about. And it's a large percentage of our uh, business now. Do you see that that line continuing to expand, or do you feel like it's already? I think you know, so. Part? No, I think so. I think it will continue to expand. But I think also, you know, the counter counterpart to that is our clean label, which is our clean clean label products maltodextrin free. Plus, we take out any non-functional ingredients like turmeric and natto. Color doesn't really add anything to the functionality of our product. Or if there was sodium bicarbonate in there as part of the you know the processing, and we had to put it in in the ingredient deck, we'd change it to baking soda if we can. Only a, a little bit more transparent, a little bit more pantry-friendly type labeling. I think it's it's still growing. I think there's been a little bit of pushback and a little bit more understanding from the ingredient world as far as the common consumer and explaining that to them what maltodextrin is. Yeah. We're also looking at um, inulin and gum acacia. Anything you use besides maltodextrin though is going to cost significantly more and the flavor transfer is just, it's much more difficult to do. Okay. So how would you say that this compares to you know other ingredients that are doing something similar in the market? I mean, what do you think sets yourself apart from your competitors? Well, I think the way that we process our products I think sets us apart. I think the, the quality of the ingredients that we start with sets us apart. I think even almost maybe a bigger component of that is our R&D and applications department. Because these products are used at, for example, the high concentrate is used at 0.25 to 0.5%. If you're off by 0.01, it could either, you can either not taste it by the functionality or the flavor that you're looking for, or you can overdose it and it starts to taste like soap. Yeah. The clean labels are growing. They're just not growing as rapidly as I thought they would. Okay. But our organics are growing as well, probably more steadily. Now, the organics, the biggest component as far as growth has been that our, our ingredients can be used in the non-GMO project verified ingredients in the, in the products in the marketplace. So that's been a benefit. If you're willing to pay for it, that's been a benefit for customers. But dairy is, again, our specialty. I think that having the option of the non-dairy, having the option of the clean label for those trends in the marketplace, we're always going to try to do that. Do you have an opinion, because you sell both dairy and non-dairy ingredients, um, on the you know the labeling kind of uh, debate that's going on right now in CPG products? Right. I think we should, the way that we approach it is we say type behind it. So if it's a non-dairy butter type, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. I think, no, I don't think they should be able to call it milk if it isn't something that is, that is plant-based. But okay. I, I think that there should be some standard of identity. There should be some... Uh, a little bit more work done with that because I do yeah. think that you know at one time maltodextrin was uh, that industry was trying to be able to, uh, I think change the label to cornstarch or just corn sugar or something right. you know this is the this is the scientific name for it this is what it should right. be called and then milk there's components to milk and this is the standard of identity this is what it should be called do you think there's much difference between the ingredient side of that debate and the, the finished product side there probably is I think that, you know, I'm sure there, 
that side of it, but it is more similar to milk. And there has to be options for people that can't drink milk. That's mm-hmm. not that's not really what I'm saying. Right. But I think that again, when you talk about being able to call something, for example, our products are enzyme modified, so you have to call them natural flavor through the CFR. There are other companies that are looking at calling their products concentrates that do the exact same thing that we do. If you don't have the standard of identity and the rules behind why you call something what it is, then you're giving somebody else an advantage and taking it. You know what I mean? You're giving somebody else an unfair advantage. Next, it's to the global company Hydrosol and their commercial director, Brian Walker. Hydrosol displayed its stabilizing and texturing systems at IFT for finished products in plant-based formats, and Brian spoke to us about the company's plans for the U.S. market. And Beth started by getting some background information on Hydrosol. So Hydrosol is a company that works on stabilization and texturization of, of finished products. The main categories we focus on are dairy, dairy analogues, you know, plant-based dairy alternatives, mm-hmm. meat and plant-based meat alternatives, and the delicatessen products we call them, like the uh, soup sauces and dressings. They would be our three category focuses. Uh, then to a lesser extent, we do some work in beverage and bakery, but the Stern Viviol group has other divisions that more focus on those two categories, not necessarily hydrosol. At the show here, we've, we're, we're aligning our whole strategy for the United States uh, based on plant-based meat alternatives, uh, and we're doing that for um, two reasons. The first is that uh, that trend started a little earlier in Europe, therefore we're a little further down the development road in terms of some solutions. The second reason is that when you have a look at the, the traditional meat industry or the tr- traditional dairy industry, there's some long-established suppliers that do a really good job with their customers, and it would be very difficult for us to have a competitive advantage coming in after after the, these, all of these relationships were already um, established. But the plant-based alternative segment, it's it's mainly startup. It's only been around a couple of years, so that we don't you don't have these long-established. This is my go-to person for plant-based stuff because the things that we do are. Um, very much new to the market therefore uh, we're on a level playing field with with any other competitor that no matter how long they've been here they've only been in this space for a year and so have we uh, here so we're leveraging some of our technical know-how that we've developed then obviously adapting it to the US market and conditions and more materials available and those sorts of things then we're designing solutions and we're, and we're engaging with a real sweet spot is small regional meat companies that want to then add some vegan alternatives to their range. So how is the how would you compare the US market to you know your other global markets? In terms of the trends itself, I think that the, the foundation of these trends is the same all over the world. Now, it started off if you were a vegan it was more of an alternative lifestyle choice mm-hmm. and now it's more you know animal welfare concerns, sustainability and environmental concerns that are really driving the category, not somebody that just wants to be a vegan. Yeah. The, the, the biggest market is flexitarian and that's why there's so many meat analogues coming out now because if you've been a vegan for the last 10 years you're really probably not looking for a meat alternative to a burger you might try it now but that wasn't what you were looking for but a flexitarian they want to eat a burger today and maybe a plant-based burger tomorrow 
and they need that authenticity or that or they it's not going to satisfy their needs they've got really high expectations and, and that's the same in, in both Europe and the United States the, the way that it's marketed in, in the United States is a little different as well there's a lot of hype around it here there's nowhere near the hype in Europe it's more sort of conservative approach where here it's uh, it's very aggressive and there's a lot of private equity money going in and there's a lot of seed money for startups and it's a really exciting place to be at the moment for this space. One of the reasons for that is that it's much more mainstream because it's a more mature market. All of those products were not developed to give a plant-based alternative to milk from, from a vegan perspective. They were all developed to avoid milk allergens. You know, it was people that were lactose intolerant or, in, or, or had some sort of allergy to milk proteins. So you know, it started with soy and then people said, oh, we've got a bit of a problem with soy. Firstly, it's GMO and secondly, it's, it's an allergen itself. And then, it, then there was this explosion of nut milks like almond milk and, and rice milk and all sorts of things, yeah. And also, now that, that has become sort of so mainstream that even retailer, they know exactly what to do with that product. But you, when you go into a retail store, they're still not sure what to do with plant-based meats. It's a bit like when organic first came out. They weren't really sure how to merchandise it properly in the stores, and we see that in both Europe and the US. I think um, from a, a dairy perspective, firstly there was this need for alternatives to dairy in this plant-based space. And with the, the sense of urgency that you had, the developers were developing the, the end product, but they weren't paying that much attention to the labelling. And as these products are now maturing, to try and differentiate themselves, even some of the retailers with their private label, they want a cleaner label. And this, is, this has been a trend across the whole food industry in the US for some time. And so the next generation of these plant-based, you have to start reducing your ingredient list. That will be some pressure on. I think also it'll start to spread out into some more sophisticated dairy products. For example, vegans will want vegan pizzas and how do we make a nice stretchy uh, mozzarella analogue because it's not easy to do at the moment and you know, specifically with some of the protein properties in milk uh, give, it, give it that, uh, that ability, that stretchability. So I think the development work will be more on these sophisticated, more sophisticated dairy alternatives. In dairy itself, Germany is, is one of the world leaders in terms of you know, milk products. And what we're seeing in Germany is um, a swing back to more full fat products, more indulgent, higher value. Uh, there's never been quite the focus on uh, low fat or, or zero fat that, that there is here in the United States. But I think there will be, there could be a swing back a little bit. And I think there's, uh, the, 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 like the Greek yogurt thing here was an absolute phenomenon. I think it's tailing off now. Yeah. But you know, what, what's next in the range could well be some of these more indulgent type yogurts, more dessert style yogurts. And we certainly see that in Europe. And then health and nutrition is, you know, is always going to be in the background. And so, you, yes, you might want to make it very appealing from an indulgence point of view, but, you, but it, it still has to, the consumer still has to feel some sort of satisfaction that you know it's pretty good for you as well. DSM Ingredients is based in the Netherlands but operates around the world with a wide range of solutions. However, at IFT it was featuring its biopreservation ingredients and talking about increasing shelf life. Beth spoke with Ingrid Daman, 
business manager of Shelf Life Solutions, and first asked about sustainability. Within DSM, and DSM is a company that's very concerned with sustainability, we really want to make a contribution to avoid food waste and extend shelf life. 30% of our food is wasted, if you consider that, and if you would extend shelf life with just one day, you could save 1.2 billion tons of household waste. So we're saying, okay, let's make a contribution to extend shelf life, but let's do that in a natural way. Because consumers are more and more demanding us to clean up labels and to remove artificial ingredients. Today, a lot of sorbates are used, benzoates, propionates, and we are committed to replace them with natural alternatives. So DSM has over 100 years of experience in fermentation. And fermentation really is a technology that has been used, whether it's in beer or and yogurt as a natural technology to extend shelf life. So we basically are presenting a range here of biopreservation solutions to naturally extend shelf life. And here you see our protective cultures where I'll tell you a little bit about and enzymes or fermentation based compounds where we focus on cheese, fermented milk products like yogurts, but also some baking and beverages. Here at the IFT we've been talking about how consumers take more and more their products on the go. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see that with adults that take maybe their yogurts, or you see that with Starbucks a lot, you know, uh, you take them in the car, or you take them to the office. So what we say, if you take those products on the go, whether it's in a cup like this or for kids, they're unrefrigerated. Mm -hmm. And to make sure that they're also safe, and to make sure that the yogurt is still protected, we have developed a range of protective cultures that allow for cold chain breaks uh, and higher temperature storage. So whether it's a consumer that's doing that or sometimes hiccups in supply chain, mm -hmm. this is kind of a seatbelt security for, for uh, producers. So the focus here is on those this recipe of protective cultures and the focus is on the yogurts. But what we're really having is a full range of solutions. So there's a few things that because we talk here about natural solutions to extend shelf life. And we also have a slide where we say shelf life basically is not only, I mean, we're focusing here on yeast, mold and bacteria spoilage. But there's different reasons why things spoil. For example, bread sometimes is thrown away because it's stale. If it's hard, you know, you can becomes a rock right. then uh, you don't consume it and we have enzymes that extend shelf life because it avoids staling mm -hmm. also some products go off because they uh, have an oxidation process they become rancid or they have colorations and beverages you see that also and DSM offers also the biggest range of antioxidants mm -hmm. so we have a very broad range of antimicrobials a very big range of antioxidants and also some solutions to avoid staling so in that sense, shelf life and doing that in a natural way is something we do in all food and beverage categories from multiple angles. I would say that uh, shelf life and shelf stability is a, a big trend right now. You know, a lot more people are talking about it, but also that people are afraid of preservatives. You know, they yeah. think, okay, well, this is very shelf stable. That must mean it's like pumped full of chemicals, and I don't want that. Correct. So how do you kind of combat that? bad reputation or that um, you know that mindset that I mean, the consumer isn't always educated on what everyone's doing so yeah this is a bit of a personal opinion I I think that people want to clean label or want cleaner label because they are so far away from making their own foods you know when my parents or my grandparents really made their own sausages you know or made their own 
salads, uh, we don't make them anymore. And by losing control, we want to get that control back by looking at the ingredient deck. And, and what they want is something they understand. And, and I firmly believe that fermentation is a technology that people understand and it's considered, you know, kind of a natural process to extend shelf life. Mm-hmm. So when it really is a culture or a fermentation-derived product, that is easier to accept for consumers than uh, something that is called a propionic or sorbic acid. Um, how would you say or categorize the U.S. and North America compared to maybe some of your other markets around the world in terms of natural preservation and you know extending shelf life? Maybe the way the market's going or the way consumers are perceiving it. Mm. I think that the U.S. has the longest shelf life in the world. So where yogurts in Europe would last maybe, you know, 10 days, two weeks, here it would be 40 days, right? right? So the standard here is really high, but the need here to move to natural is also really there. I mean, you can see that by the supermarkets and the trend. So the challenge here for brand owners is even more complex because the consumers demand long shelf life on the one hand, and they and they kind of set the senders themselves. Yeah. And now they need to exchange for a natural ingredient. So the challenge here in the US is bigger than yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. And finally from IFT, we spoke with David Hart, Salt of the Earth Business Director about sodium reduction and cost savings through their Mediterranean Umami product. Beth asked about the umami product and what the company was promoting at IFT. So we're showcasing our Mediterranean umami, which is an all-natural, clean-label flavor enhancer. It's based upon tomato, mushroom, seaweed extracts, and sea salt. And it can be used for salt reduction or flavor enhancement. In this case, we're showcasing flavor enhancement and as a derivative of that, some cost savings. So we're using it in our mac, mac and cheese. So in the cheese sauce, makes it more craveable, yummy, tasty. And you can also reduce the cheese by, in this case, 10%. How exactly is it a cost savings? So you use less cheese in the cheese sauce. Okay. Um, you can also, what we find, different customers, different applications, they may use less ingredients where the umami is enhancing the flavor. So for example, some of our meat customers find that they use less of their spices because if, when they add the umami, uh, it makes their product taste better, more craveable. They can reduce the salt, but it also enhances the spicy, you know, the spices. Um, so they can reduce the spice blend uh, to get the right flavor that they want, so it's not overwhelming. So there's zero cost savings there. We have basically a Mediterranean umami gold, which is the combination of the tomatoes and mushrooms, seaweed, sea salt. Um, we have a couple, one or two permutations on that, but um, they're pretty niche. And we're in the process of developing powder version of the Mediterranean umami. Why do you think that this you know, will be successful in the market? Is this uh, what consumers want? For sure it's what consumers want, or it's hitting on a lot of those consumer mega trends. So it's clean label, mm-hmm. uh, it's all natural. It's, you know, as they say in Britain, they call it uh, stored cupboard ingredients. Basically okay. something that you buy in the store having your cupboard. Mm-hmm. When you read the ingredient statement, you, know, you can understand what it is, right? You know, no one has maltodextrin in their cupboard. But you know, people know what tomatoes are, so or sea salt. And that's really simple. So you have the you know, trend for clean label, all natural, trend for healthier food. So in this case, we allow food companies to reduce the amount of salt if they want. So those sort of consumer trends, food companies obviously are formulating and making products to meet those. So we're a nice tool 
that food companies can use to, to be able to create products that are flavorable, that taste good, that are healthier, and we're meeting those clean label, natural trends. Our main core business is sea salt. But we realized a number of years ago, salt is not really a growth industry. So we just said, well, took that sort of knowledge in around salt and savory things, created Mediterranean umami. Um, we launched it a number of years ago. So this launch is a, the global launch, right? It's not yeah. just here. Okay. Um, how would you compare the market here in North America compared to Israel, your largest market? So I would say like each local market also has its own characteristics. So for example, right now in Israel, also in South Africa, there's new regulation that has front of packaging traffic lights. So products that have too much fat, too much salt, too much sugar, you get like a big red traffic light on the front of the package. Okay. So like right now in Israel, and that goes into effect January 1st, 2020. Okay. All of the food companies are reformulating their products to not get that red traffic light, especially products geared towards kids. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of our customers makes products, it's like one of the number one consumer products for kids. Um, mothers are the consumers who buy that, and they are terrified of getting this, this red traffic light. And by using our umami, they reduce the amount of salt in their product by almost 30% to avoid that. So we see that, like in Israel, the regulation is really driving things. Say, similar regulation in South Africa. Um, in America, the, everything's kind of voluntary. Um, some of the major multinationals have you know, corporate responsibility platforms where they've pledged to reduce sugar, reduce fat, reduce salt in their products. Um, so you do kind of have some of that. Um, the FDA uh, actually released a list of sodium content limits in foods. So there's this big list of like um, 200 types of foods. Um, it's voluntary. Some people pay attention to it, many people don't. But the salt reduction in the U.S. Not a big deal, but all of the food companies in the U.S. want their products to be craveable. That's like the new kind of buzzword I hear all the time, craveable, craveable, craveable. Yeah. Um, and how do you do that? Well, one of the ways you can do that is by adding umami and, um and flavor enhancers to make things just taste better and have the taste kick more. So we're finding a lot of our customers in the U.S., for example, are really using umami for that. In terms of competition, are there other umami ingredient suppliers out there that you are, you know, struggling against, or how, do, how would you differentiate yourself? Um, so, you know, umami ingredients kind of a um, well-established category. You know, the first kind of and the ultimate umami ingredients MSG, right? Umami glutamate. It's out there. It's still there. Most consumers don't want it. It's definitely not clean label. It's definitely not natural. The yeast extracts, nucleotides. Uh, hydrolyzed vegetable proteins, amino acids, you know, a lot of those products are out there um, and all of them have their you know, profile where it works best, where it doesn't work as well, etc, etc. Um, and what we find is that our umami has a very different flavor profile. So it's a little bit more, say, neutral in a lot of ways. So other umami flavor enhancers might impart a very characteristic flavor that's unwanted. And ours doesn't. And, or it's a different sort of umami flavor um, that tends to be complementary products that people are making. One of the things that we find, certainly in the lab, certainly with customers in America and around the world, um, our biggest customers are plant-based meat companies because the plants just lack those umami flavor compounds that taste good and make things craveable. So you can use our umami um, across a wide variety of plant-based meats using pea protein, soy protein, bonzo bean protein, chickpea protein, you know, 
and, and it helps um, enhance the flavor and it gives it sort of more depth and some umami and some more flavorability. And we're finding around the world a lot of success in plant-based products. And now we leave IFT and come back to the UK for an interview with PACOR, an international supplier of sustainable plastic packaging solutions for the consumer, food service, food and non-food markets. The company has 19 manufacturing locations and three sales offices around the world and is the top country for plastic packaging in Eastern Europe. We spoke with Nick Bly based in the UK and Nick is the Design and Development Manager at PACOR and I first asked about the new lightweight dairy caps. Compared to the previous design of dairy closure that's been around for several years now, it's a, it's a one-start closure which features an induction heat seal foil this is, is applied within the dairies under a induction heat seal, which provides the tamper evidence and the, the seal on the on the bottle today. The design of that cap has been lightweighted over many years. Original cap being over two grams in weight, and the cap previous to the stealth cap edition was 1.5 grams. We've now reduced that by 13%, and the main driver behind that was to try and reduce our polymer usage in light of all of the plastic awareness around the not just the UK but further afield and we really wanted to if we can't use 100% recycled content right now how could we have a positive impact on that and one way we can do is re-engineer the cap to reduce polymer so this was achieved by analyzing the cap's integrity and removing weight from areas which wouldn't result in weakened performance if there was areas of the cap that would be weakened from it, we would redistribute polymer that's left into those areas. For example, on the, the top corner of the cap, the knurling, which is the ribs on the outside of the cap, they wrap around the new stealth cap, whereas before in this area, we relied on material mass rather than the design of it to provide strength to prevent caps being flexible in what we call ovality. So the new cap is actually stronger in this area using less plastic, using design application. So you taught me a new word. I didn't even know that that had a name. What did you call it again? Yeah, I mean, we, we call it knurling. It's also called ribs as well. And, and what it is, it helps the user grip the cap to turn it. These are the vertical ribs on the outside of the cap, but they're also key to the application process within the dairy to achieve the maximum torque on the application. Everybody's talking about plastics and single-use plastics and reducing plastics. I mean, how much better are these environmentally? So in terms of environmentally, we're using the same grade of polymer. So the source of it, the result of where they end up, that's still the same. And we continue to work with material sorters to develop the stream for sourcing what we call RHDPE, which is recycled HDPE, post-consumer waste. In terms of the environment on this particular project, the impact we've had is a reduction of polymer usage rather than addressing where it ends up. That's separate to this project. But we're expecting a reduction of around 600 tonnes of HDP per year through the 13% lightweighting programme we've just had, which we consider quite significant for our impact on providing plastic solutions. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely significant because when you, when you extend that over all of the products, it's, it makes a huge difference. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we do, on top of stealth, as, as soon as it was implemented, we were already beginning projects on material applications within stealth as a cap. 
So we're now looking at recycling our own internal scrap to qualify the process of using our HDPE. So when, when it is readily available, we'll be able to process that quite quickly, having learned about using it in our own internal trials. What we found from that project is it's really emphasized the pressure on polymer demand for post-consumer recycled HDPE, which in our experience so far, it's limited and it's a very competitive procurement environment to allocate this type of volume we need to achieve what could become legislation of a minimum 30% content. Yeah, I suppose you don't think of the legislation side as well. And obviously, you want to do this for the environmental reasons, but at some point it will be there will be legislation in the same way as we've seen it on sugar yes exactly we're all looking at if we can't stop using it how can we temper it and by putting a, a tax as proposed as, as a 30 percent minimum recycled content it really does put a lot of emphasis on trying to source this type of material and make it work within our process which is already as you can imagine with our output a very tightly controlled process to achieve volume and also specification of such a lightweight cap to suddenly start blending different materials it does require development and it requires good sourcing of the material and is this something that you'll be able to apply to your the rest of your portfolio yes we um alongside stealth we've already started applying the same design principles to our range of in mold labeled pots which we supply significant volume into the UK dairy sector with IML, with in-mold label pots for the cream and custard and other types of pourable type dairy products. These pots are injection molded using polypropylene and we are working with several different tool makers on ways of reducing weight through similar techniques to what we've done on the stealth cap. So it's thinning down the wall sections in certain areas. If that becomes a weak point, how can we stiffen it up with design features rather than sheer massive polymer. So for example, using ribs, using corrugations and other types of features on the pot, how can we strengthen it? And that's a key focus of ours going forward as we've implemented stealth on the caps. And, and what other products do you have that are utilized in the dairy industry? We have two factories in the UK, one in Mansfield and one in Chester Street in the Northeast. And predominantly from the Mansfield factory, we supply IML pots. We supply overlids to fit these pots in two different diameters. These are clear PP overlids. We also supply a significant volume of the, the dairy caps into the UK fresh milk market. And we, we do a few other bespoke type products outside of the dairy sector. We specialize in closures for some confectionery customers, and we also provide some food service type products for products that may go through heating or chilling and really challenging types of industry where it, the product may be hot filled, then blast chilled, and then stored for maybe 12 months before they're used, and then uh, defrosted and microwaved. So the challenges on the, the plastic packaging there are significant to make sure that we carry out any stress cracking, the product isn't affected, and we're very specialised in providing a bespoke solution in situations like that. And it's been out for a little while now. What's the reaction been like from your customers? Yeah, it, it's been very good. From speaking with our customers and, and their sort of customer service departments, we've had stories of consumers actually writing in or calling up to acknowledge the difference of the caps, whether it's due to the reduction in plastic and maybe they have seen that, that alongside a press article or whether they've just generally felt a difference. The ribs on the cap, they feel different, it's easier to use. 
so it's probably providing a better function and generally yeah we've we've had good feedback we've also had inquiries outside the uk which is good for us to extend this specification further afield obviously you don't just sell in the uk you are a global company we are a global company predominantly in europe we also have a plant in north america and and a market out there as well so we are a global provider and with this particular cap most of it is in the UK, but we also have a customer that is filling bottles using this cap in Eastern Europe. So we do export as well. And I suppose with, with stuff like this, you're always tweaking it, always trying to develop better, newer, more environmentally friendly products as you go? Yes, we, we are, yeah. We're always looking for the next thing. And although Stealth it, it has been an active project, and now at the end of that, alongside Stealth, we've also been developing caps that are more recyclable, using different materials, uh, eliminating components. So can we have a one-piece closure rather than using a foil with the closure? We're looking at alternatives such as that. We're very active on innovation in the right areas and driving forward in line with either legislation or uh, consumer experience. And now we take a look at the global dairy markets as we do each week with INTL FC Stone. And this week, it's Charlie Highland with all the info for us. Hey Jim, we've had a reasonably stable market uh, in terms of European dairy prices this week. Although we remain, for butter in particular, still at quite low levels. Latest quotations out this week were running at about 3,890 uh, euros per tonne, which is the kind of lowest level since about since 2016. So. Still under pressure, but hasn't really gone lower this week, um, despite some, um, you know, reasonably negative uh, global news. Um, the biggest being that we had the GDT auction this week, which was down again. Uh, it was down 3.8%, so quite a considerable move lower on the, on the latest New Zealand auction. And on that, most products as well were lower. So we had whole milk down over 4%. Skim milk powder was down 3.5%. And then on the on the fat side, uh, both butter and AMF were both down. Butter down about uh, almost six percent, and AMF down over three percent. So again, fairly negative news, but it didn't really drive the European prices much lower because it was largely in line with expectation. So there has been a, an expectation that demand was weaker on the world market over the last few weeks, and that was just proven by this latest auction. Um, and other bits of news and information out this week, uh, we had some U.S. milk collections, which were also uh, fairly poor, down 0.4% in May, uh, although the solid content were still reasonably good. So overall, not looking that bad. So the milk collection picture looks, um, again, in line with expectation. Uh, the only other major thing that we saw this week that people were talking about was the butter production in, in Europe. Some statist further statistics were released, and, and that looked quite strong in April, up over 5%. So hence the reason, again, why when you look at the strong butter production and you look at the weak global demand picture, it's, it's why we're down at these lowish low levels uh, for butter. Uh, skim milk powder market also has been quite stable this week. You know, exports still continue to be to be reasonably strong. Demand still is reasonably strong, but um, you know, with this strong butter production, we're also producing some some extra skim, so keeping markets very stable. Thanks, Charlie. I guess Liam is back next week, so we'll talk to him then. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. 
And that's it for another Dairy Dialogue. Next week, among other things, we have an interview on cheese, specifically British cheese, to find out about a very interesting project to preserve the history of the many different cheeses around the UK. And so, until next time, have a good week and thanks for listening.